invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47. Specifically, we're going to be looking together at verses 11 through 27, not 11 through 17, as it says in your uh, uh, folder there. But 11 through 27. And we're going to see the administration of Joseph. We remember that Joseph has brought his family out of Canaan with Pharaoh's approval, and Pharaoh has invited him to resettle him, in, uh, resettle them rather, in the land of Goshen, to settle them in the, the best of the land, and they've done that. So now uh, his, his family's needs are taken care of, and the emphasis in the narrative now switches to uh, what he did for Pharaoh, and indeed Egypt, uh, in their time of dire need and how well uh, things worked out. But before we turn our attention to God's word, let's go to the God who gave it to us. Let's ask for his help. Please join me. Oh, Lord God, as I come before you, I am mindful of my own weakness, my inability to, uh, to do much of anything, Lord, to even reach ears. But I pray, Lord, that today I would remember that I am called to be your messenger and to deliver your message to your people. And that, Lord, it is our calling as your people to heed that message and to hear your word and apply it in our lives. Help me to do this as well. I know I I need to hear these words. I need to understand the importance, O Lord, of of your sovereign uh, government in our lives and the way that you work through uh, the authorities that you put above us. I know you need to stifle my own rebellion. So I pray, Lord, that you would help me to do that and to preach forcefully about your sovereignty in every aspect of our lives, Lord. Now, Lord, help us to hear. Give me unction and zeal, and let me, O Lord, preach with fire in my bones. And I do pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 47. I'll be beginning with verse 11. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to their number and their families. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence, for the money has failed? Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock, if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from our Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. 
so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law that over the land of Egypt to this day, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, maybe interesting. It's interesting to me that um, the morning and the evening sermons have dealt with government policies and the results of wise rule. Now, I have to tell you, I did not plan this. I, I, I didn't set out so that, uh, you know, that the, uh, the sermons would dovetail on that theme today. Uh, so it seems certain to me, at least, that God meant to deal with us regarding our views of government, perhaps. Um, and I could say at this point, I don't, need, uh, I don't know who needs to hear this, but, and then dot, dot, dot. But I sort of do know who needs to hear this. So I hope, no, I'm kidding. Um, uh, but I do need to hear this myself sometimes because I tend to find that my, uh, my views on, on government uh, stray towards rebellion and I don't see God's hand in it very often. But I think he is trying to bring to our attention also that often our, um, shall we say, our imperatives, the things that are most important to us, are not what is most important to God. And often it's actually setting aside those things that are most important to us. That is the way forward. Now, uh, let's get to the text itself. We start out with Joseph's family being settled in Goshen. And the name the land of Goshen, obviously, uh, by the time that Moses was writing these books, because we remember that he was writing them at around the time of the Exodus. So uh, this was, uh, you remember, 400 years after these events had taken place. The name land of Goshen by that time was archaic. Uh, by that time, uh, it was named Ramesses. And the reason, interestingly enough, that it was named Ramesses is because the Jews had actually built a supply city, uh, the uh, Hebrew slaves. We read that in Exodus 1.11, they had built that. And they are well provided for <laughs> in this land at this point in time, which is good because the text tells us that the crops had failed in Canaan and Egypt. There was nothing to eat. So only where Joseph had gathered in and stored grain was there anything for the people to eat. And had uh, the people of God not been provided for by Joseph's uh, storing up these things, his own family in Canaan would have run out of money. And then they would have had nothing. And as a result, they would have died. Some of them uh, undoubtedly would have perished. Perhaps the entire seed of Abraham would have died away in the famine in that land, but God was not willing to let that happen, obviously. 
So he had used this famine as a means of bringing the people into Egypt, establishing them in the best place in Egypt, and now he's building them, or going to build them, into a mighty nation. But what are the rest of the nation? Uh, Back in Egypt, the average Egyptian had to pay for the stockpiled grain as well, just as the brothers had had to pay for it when they had come to visit. But eventually, they ran out of money. It makes sense. This is an agricultural people. If they're not actually producing anything, and they're not able to export it to the surrounding nations, and they're not even able to to plant and grow enough for themselves, they are going to run out of money. One of the things that we are looking at uh, in Ukraine's war with Russia, Ukraine is primarily a grain-producing nation. They, at this point in time, have very little ability to, uh, to plant, to harvest, uh, to bring in that grain and then to ship it out. So the, one of their primary means of income has been absolutely destroyed. So they are in uh, a sorry state. But in this case, of course, there was a place where the Egyptians could go to get grain. But eventually, they just didn't have any money to buy it with. So what are they going to do? Well, the, the next year, when they went to uh, Joseph after they had run out of money, what did they trade for grain? They, they bartered their livestock away, all of their flocks and their herds and so on. In this way, Pharaoh and the Egyptian government became the owners of all the animals in the land. All of the herds and flocks essentially became his. But still, the famine continued. Until the farmers, their flocks and herds were gone, they had nothing left to trade. What are they going to trade? The only thing that they actually had at that point was their bodies and their land. In other words, at this point, in order to eat, they're going to have to give up their homes, their farms, and their freedom. That's what they're being asked to part with. Thus, through Joseph's policy, Pharaoh became the owner of everything in the land. Not only did he become the owner of everything in the land, he became the owner of the land itself and the people who lived on the land. They had, in fact, sold themselves essentially into slavery to Pharaoh. He became their master. Uh, They were now totally dependent also on the grain dole in order to survive at this point. So what we see also is Joseph moving the people who were on the borders of the land and who were far away from the cities. He moves them from the land into the cities themselves so that they might receive grain uh, at a regular allotment more easily uh, instead of traveling long distances. Uh, And interestingly enough, in history, famines have long been one of the, the main movers of people off of the land and into the cities uh, so that they might receive food more easily, uh, especially when um, they can't get anything living out in the country. Why should we die out here in our fields when we can move to the city and perhaps earn a living and still get food? That's uh, why so many people uh, in the past in New York and Boston had Irish accents and Irish last names because, of course, they had come over during the time of the potato famine. They didn't particularly want to, li- uh, to leave their land in the Emerald Isle, but they figured that traveling to the great unknown place, America, where there were so many uh, promises made and so on, was better than staying on your land and dying there. So of course they emigrated in droves, over a million Irishmen left. Uh, many of them didn't go as far as New York and Boston, incidentally. Liverpool is also, uh, you, you may have heard of a fellow by the name of Paul McCartney, uh, who uh, was with a small band that uh, made, made a big name for a little while. But he was, um, obviously, he was of Irish descent, as were many Liverpudlians who had immigrated during the time of the um, potato famine from Ireland.
When your choices either move or starve, moving doesn't seem so bad. It really does uh, make people more willing to move. Now, at this point, Joseph could have said, you are all Pharaoh's slaves. And from this point onwards, you work for Pharaoh. He takes everything that you produce and he'll give you back a little so that you can eat. He'll give you what you need to live, but everything else is his. Or, alternatively, he could have said, Pharaoh gets the lion's share of everything that you produce. He's going to take four-fifths of everything that you produce upon your land, and you get to keep one-fifth of whatever you can grow. Uh, But instead, he actually reverses that formula, and he tells them they can keep four-fifths of everything that they grow on what is essentially Pharaoh's land using Pharaoh's seed, and they only need to give one-fifth of that to Pharaoh. He also gave them, you remember, that, uh, that seed so they could replant after the famine, after the drought was over and the famine had ended, and they would have something to eat and to live on. We also note that the priests, they were already maintained by Pharaoh. In other words, their, their income, their livelihood was already provided for by the state. He was the one, uh, Pharaoh was the one who pays for them. And that may seem alien to us because, of course, we have such a rigid separation of church and state within our land. But that was never the case in the ancient world. The religion and the state were one. Uh, That prevailed up until really the modern era. And uh, in this case, Joseph didn't need to change any of the arrangements for the priests. They get to keep their land. Uh, because they didn't need to sell it in order to buy food. Their food was already provided for out of the public pocket. Taxes were already paying uh, for their services as the religious leaders in the country. Now, what should we think of all of this? How should we, how should we come at it? Well, there's, uh, there's a few minor applications, and I think there's one big application. I, I, my tendency is I want to sprint immediately to the big application first, but I'm actually going to leave that for last and get the minor ones. First, um, we need to deal with what the text tells us and what the people thought. Uh, And that is that the people were grateful. The text tells us that people were grateful for this policy. They come to Joseph and they say, you have saved our lives. They acknowledge that they would all have starved had not Joseph intervened. And they also would have known that he could have taken terrible advantage of them. He could have essentially enslaved them in, in, in reality, the entire populace, and yet he did not. And so they said, we are more than happy to be Pharaoh's servants, to serve him. They also, this also uh, had a purpose in it. Uh, it allowed the people of God, that is uh, Joseph's family, Jacob and his children, to settle and then to grow in the midst of the land. The people were grateful for Joseph, so much so that they were willing to welcome he and his family. Now, this is a big deal on a number of levels. One, because the Canaanites were not popular with the Egyptians. They did not like them. They also did not like, and we've already discussed this last week, they didn't like herders. They didn't like people who worked with these, uh, these animals, and they certainly didn't like nomads. They were kind of gypsies in the land, but the prominence and the the usefulness of Joseph to the Egyptian people had made them welcome in the land. The Lord had set it in place so that they would be able to move into this foreign country, be aliens in the midst of it, and yet still be welcome. They also, uh, this had made Pharaoh essentially a divine right ruler of everything in the land, and because Pharaoh 
was well disposed towards Joseph, the people also were um, disposed to, to treat Joseph and his family well as well. So we see that happening where the king is, in essence, the protector of God's people. That comes up in the Bible on a number of occasions. So there's some obvious examples. Cyrus uh, and Artaxerxes uh, come to mind. Both of them protected God's people from even the people of their own nation. So for, for quite some time, the people are, uh, of God are established in the nation of Egypt, a foreign nation, and they're protected. They're not in danger because of what Joseph had done. The entire text, obviously, is designed to highlight the wisdom that God had granted Joseph, as well as Joseph's honesty, faithfulness, and loyalty. Not just faithfulness to God. You remember when Joseph had been uh, tempted by Potiphar's wife, what he had said. He had said, everything has been entrusted to me by Potiphar. This guy trusts me implicitly. How could I sin against him by taking the only thing that he's denied me, which is you? How could I do that and sin against my God as well? So he had put both of those before her in explaining why he was not going to sleep with her. I can't sin against Potiphar and I can't sin against God. And Joseph had shown that that was something that was important to him throughout. In his position, he could have entered into massive corruption. He could have uh, made himself rich beyond his wildest desires and then moved some of those riches to his own children as well. But he did not. He ended up being a very, very, very honest man. Also, uh, later on, as the children of Israel were, re were reading this in Moses' time, uh, before they left Egypt, they would have been very familiar with the one-fifth rule. And so the fathers would be able to say to the children, you know why it is that the Egyptians have to pay one-fifth of everything that they, they make to Pharaoh? Everything they raise goes to him? It's because our ancestor Joseph ran this place and he ran it so well it was something that would have been set before them to show them that they had not always been slaves in the land and that the Lord had made provision for them and now he was bringing them out it also shows the importance obviously of, of wisdom again we learned about the importance of wisdom to leadership in the morning but we do remember what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 8.14, Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, all the judges of the earth. Why was Joseph so wise? He was wise because the Lord was with him. And he granted him the gift of wisdom. So it should be something that causes the people of God to see wisdom as desirable. I wish we had more desire for wisdom in our own age and not just power and influence. We need, we desperately need wisdom, but without the fear of God, we won't have it. So we need to seek the fear of God. We need to seek after the Lord and ask him for wisdom. More importantly, we also see here the fulfillment of the, the great covenant promise uh, that Abraham made, or God made to Abraham rather. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we can see here the beginnings of, of that working out here. The people of God living in the midst of Egypt are beginning to be a blessing. And Joseph, 
one of the, the seed of Abraham, not the seed, the great promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would be the, the great and true blessing to all the nations, and yet one of the seed of Abraham who would be a blessing even to the foreign nations and save many alive. It's not just the final blessing of the coming of Christ and the uh, gift of eternal life through him to uh, the nations that God was going to bless them with. He was also going to bless them with the presence of his people. And that's something that we shouldn't forget. The presence of God's word and God's people in a land and those who faithfully observe it has been a blessing to the nations through the years. You can see specific evidences of that in, in things like, for instance, uh, I was reading a little while ago about the Welsh revival of 1904 and 1905. It was said that there was so little crime in the land of Wales uh, as that revival was breaking out that the policemen had little to do except direct tra uh, traffic and find you know, the parents of lost children. That was basically uh, all they had to do in that period. Would that it were that Welsh policemen still only had that little to do, but unfortunately, Crime has come back to that land with a vengeance as the gospel has gone out. We remember also the effects of the great, or at least we should, we really should remember the effects of the great awakening, both in England and America. The reason that you have this wonderful free government, a constitution unlike so many other constitutions. I was listening with, with horror to the, uh, about the constitution that Chile is about to enact, which is essentially a, a left-wing fantasy document that will bring, uh, and you, know, you just listen to it, and you realize it's going to bring uh, a dystopian uh, nightmare into that particular country. But Chile never went through the Great Awakening. They never went through a Protestant Reformation. They never went through any of those things that God did to bring great revival and reformation to this land and England. The reason why we have all of those freedoms vouchsafed to us in the Bill of Rights and so on and in the Constitution itself is because of Christianity. We can deny it all we want to, but it's the truth. And by Christianity, I mean Reformed Christianity in the case of both nations. Both of them came out of the Reformation and the blessing of the gospel and the preaching of the true word of God has not only blessed the church, but blessed the people of the United States for many years. And it's only as the church has been declining and the influence of the Bible has been going down that we've really been seeing all of those, those awful things that, uh, that um, prevail in nations that don't have the light of the word coming in with a vengeance. But none of those things, I think, are the main application here. Uh, and so I, I do want to get to... So the, the big application, and I've got to admit, it's a, it's a hard application. Uh, I remembered back as I was preparing uh, for this, uh, a discussion that I had in seminary. And seminary now is many, many years ago, and this discussion was a long time ago, but it's still semi-vivid in my memory. We had uh, been studying Genesis. We'd gone over this particular section, and uh, we were in a discussion. And one of the students um, was absolutely appalled uh, at, this, at this particular section because his pastor had uh, attempted to um, essentially explain what had happened with Joseph and the people selling all of their things to them. He had spun the entire story so it didn't really mean what it said. He had he'd tried to uh, make it so that the people had not essentially given up their homes and their, their livestock and their, you know, he'd, he'd said, this is why that isn't actually what was happening and so on. And after the teacher made it very clear, no, that is, that is what actually happened. He said, well, I, I can't preach that to my people. You don't understand. I, I can't tell people 
who are descended from slaves, that this was okay, that he made them into, into slaves. I can't tell people that um, it's all right for them to part with, with their land and their money. And he said, I myself, he said, I would rather have died than to have given those things up. And I think there's a lot of people looking at that who have said, yeah, you give me a choice between losing my land, losing my, my uh, money and my freedom, I, I'd rather die. Yeah, I, that's okay. I'll, I'll die on this land. We'll starve to death, but we'll do so with dignity and so on. And the teacher had fired back and he'd been, you know, kind of, it was one of those kind of rubbing your hands together, wondering what to say moments. And he essentially, he just said, well, you know, even the greatest of the saints in the Bible uh, committed sins. And he essentially had spun out that Joseph was a Machiavellian and this was a departure from what he should have done, but he did it for Pharaoh. And, and I remember looking at, you know, between both of them and thinking, no, that's not it at all. It's not that Joseph was a Machiavellian who was attempting to amass power for, for Pharaoh because he felt that you know, dictatorship is the best form of government and that he was wrong and that he wasn't following God's will in this. And it's also not the case that we need to make all sorts of excuses and try to change the text so that what actually happened in Egypt didn't happen in Egypt. What we actually need to, to come down to is that, yeah, actually... One of the main callings of the Christian life is to be willing to part with anything in this world for the sake of life. And I don't mean just life here on earth. I mean eternal life. And to actually deal with the idea that in doing that, it's okay to become slaves. And when I say that, what do I mean? Well, I mean what Paul meant when he called himself a doulos again and again. What does doulos mean? It means slave. Who did Paul say he was? He said he was a slave of Jesus Christ. And I need to tell you this. We need to be willing to part with land. We need to be willing to part with honor. We need to be willing to part with riches in order to gain life. That's at the heart of the Christian message. And you may look at me and say, what on earth are you talking about? But it really is. Let me show you. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And there I want to read with you part of the story that is usually known as the rich young ruler. <clears throat> now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, I'm reading Luke 18, 18. Asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that, he became very sorrowful. He said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. I'm going to cut it off. We'll come back to that. Leave your, leave your, your, uh, your finger there for the moment. We have a young man who came to the Lord Jesus Christ. He had essentially everything 
that a Jew in his time could have wanted. He had honor, he had status, he had riches, his family, I have no doubt, were landed gentry in that particular region. And he says, what should I do? He understands there is one thing that his money can't buy, and that's eternal life. That's what he was seeking. He was seeking the right thing. So he comes to Jesus and he asks, what do I have to do to get eternal life? <laughs> what, do I have to, what do I have to sell or buy or do? You know, it's always works righteousness. And uh, Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Keep the commandments and you can enter into heaven. And that's true. Had the man been able to perfectly keep the commandments and had he never broken any of them? Yes, he could enter into eternal life. And the man actually thought he had. He really thought, I've kept all of your commandments. I've kept all of God's commandments since I was, I was young. So what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. You, you shall not have anything in your heart before God. You shall not put anything before the Lord. And so he told him, take that thing that you idolize, that you think you can't live without, and that is your honor, your dignity, your riches, and so on. Get rid of all of it and then come follow me, and then you'll have eternal life. Is the young man willing to do that? No. He's not going to part with his land. He's not going to part with his money. He's not going to part with his honor. He's not going to do it. I'd rather die than submit to those things. But as a result, what is he losing? He's losing eternal life. And that, brothers and sisters, is something that we need to come to terms with. There are many people who will say, I'm not going to lose those things that I, I prize so so highly here on earth in order to have eternal life. Now, it may not be land and riches and honor, but it can be social status. It can be, oh, my job. It can be my friends. It can be my pleasures. And it can be the other idols that I, I idolize all the time. I'm not going to part with them. If I can't get into heaven, unless I part with these things, well, then heaven's not for me. And I'll take what we were discussing before, or what Elder, was, uh, Elder King was discussing before. I'll take eternal punishment, conscious eternal punishment for my sins instead. Is that a good trade? Let me ask you. Not at all. What is there in this world that is equal in worth to your immortal soul? Let me ask you that. What in this material universe is your land worth your soul? Is your money worth your soul? Is your pleasure worth your soul? Is your dog? I am amazed at how people idolize their beasts these days. Is all your dogs, even the cutest, are any of them worth your soul? And the answer is no, not at all. So then what should we be willing to part with in order to have eternal life? And the answer is everything. We should be willing, you and I, to give up everything in this world. Honor, dignity, land, title, all of those things in order to follow Christ. We should be willing to do that which the rich young ruler was not willing to do. Now you remember, I hope, that the, the story, the parable doesn't end there. And the, uh, the apostles are amazed because they always expected that the rich would be you know, first in line when it came to entering into the kingdom. And those who heard it said, I'm reading now from uh, verse 26, taking up where we left off, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left houses or parents or brothers or wife or kingdom for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Now there's the, you know, some people might call it a paradox. If we're not willing to part with everything in this life, then we can't gain everything in the next. But if we do, we'll find we've given up nothing of value and gained everything instead. We give to gain in this sense. We give up our our riches and our wealth and our title and our honor and our land here on earth. What do we gain? The answer is everything. Everything. Not just eternal life, but the blessings, all the blessings that God can bestow. I'm going to terribly destroy the uh, the quote. I believe it was Jim Elliott who said, uh, he who gives up that which he cannot hold on to. And I've just blown it. Somebody will remember it. But, uh, and then tell me afterwards. Uh, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I believe that's the, uh, that's the essence of it. But it's true. So the question is, are you willing to part with those things that you can have in this world in order to gain everything? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do those things in order to become a slave of Jesus Christ? And that's the other paradox, isn't it? To be a slave of Christ is to be free indeed. And to think that you're free, that's really to be enslaved to sin and bondage and idolatry. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27. He said, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden that was placed upon the Egyptians in order to live was comparatively light, but it's nothing compared to how light the burden is that Christ places upon his doulos, his douloi, actually, plural slaves, us. If we serve Christ, we'll find that the yoke that we cast off in coming to him is nothing. The yoke that we cast off, rather, was heavy, and it was hard to bear, and it would have pressed us down lower than the grave. But the yoke that he gives us in serving him in many senses, as light as a feather. It's not oppressive. It's not hard to bear. And we find joy in serving him. At least I hope you do. So let's, let's be willing to be slaves of Christ, to sacrifice everything for the sake of eternal life. The choice initially may be hard to do so, but yet we will find that the benefits that we gain are beyond compare. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we do ask that you would help us to be willing to sacrifice I pray, Lord, that we would be willing to sacrifice our pride. We would be willing to sacrifice our honors, our riches, our wealth, anything in this world for your sake. Help us not to hold on to things that we can't take with us. Remind us that uh, hearses don't pull U-hauls, shrouds don't have pockets, all of those things. We can't take anything in this world with us into the next. The ancients used to bury their dead with possessions But tomb robbers would come along and take all of those things away. They were no avail to them, and they were not even useful in the afterlife. For they had had their riches here, and as a result, they gained only punishment in the next life. Help us to be willing to defer our pleasure 
to be willing to hold off on the riches and to be willing to, with Peter, give up everything for your sake. Oh, Lord, give us that kind of heart. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.